Last night I mentioned um, about listening, a, a few words about listening to a Dharma talk. I'd like to just remind you of them. Um, there's a, a different, it's a different kind of listening, listening to a Dharma talk than listening to a lecture um, you know, in, in university or uh, at a public presentation. It's, um, we're bringing our meditation practice to the listening. And so it's a, it's a quality of listening which is um, not engaging uh, with judgments um, or critique or uh, or kind of measuring against other things we've heard. We may do that later. We may, you know, reflect on the talk and um, and do that later. And that's fine. And I'm not saying that uh, everything that you hear, you know, should be just accepted and swallowed and not uh, questioned. It's not the point. But the point is to listen with an open heart, to listen uh, with the capacity to, to be touched, um, to perhaps have uh, some place in your practice, a place in your heart-mind addressed that um, can shift your perspective or open or release a certain way that you've been holding on to uh, a sense of a self around something. So, uh, so for that reason, it's it's good just to listen. You know, um, if you feel you really need to write something down, let it be just a word or two. Um, if something stays with you, you might, you know, go back in your journal later and uh, write a few sentences down um, so yeah it's 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 a different kind of listening it's a it's listening as a Dharma practice it's um, and we don't have a lot of experience <coughs> or, or training in that usually when we listen to somebody speaking you know the way we've been conditioned in, in our education is you know we're there's going to be a test. <laughs> well, there's not going to be any test. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and even if you forget every single word I said, that's fine. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, it, uh, it, it may nonetheless have touched, something might have touched, or might touch something in you that you don't even remember what was said or who said it. Um, that's the way it works sometimes. So let's take just a minute or two to move into a space of silence.
present in the body, present in the heart. So I'd like to talk about equanimity, describing perhaps in more depth or um, a bit more uh, uh, fully what, what it is, what is this quality of heart and mind uh, that the word equanimity points to. And, um, and, uh, and reflect on the difference between living with equanimity and, and living without equanimity. And, and then uh, reflect on what are the, the causes and conditions that give rise to equanimity. I'm just going to talk about some of them today and uh, talk about some more tomorrow. I find that the word equanimity is not very commonly used in our culture and uh, it's happened quite a number of times that when I bring the word equanimity into a talk um, there's a bit of puzzlement or somebody asks could you please uh, explain exactly what is equanimity and um, I think that this may be because uh, it's not something that's talked about very much in our culture. Uh, it, it's something that arises from mature spiritual practice. And our culture is not one that is um, in, uh, in, in contact with uh, the spiritual roots of um, its origins. Uh, so um, has become very disconnected from spiritual practice. So, um, so a few words about uh, just describing equanimity. <clears throat> so I would say that equanimity is um, it's a space of awareness. Uh, a, a kind of an openness in which experience is known and accepted as it is. And it, it grows out of the practice of insight, the practice of mindfulness. Uh, in fact, equanimity, equanimity is, um, in, in the Dharma teachings, equanimity is um, included in a number of different uh, lists of, of uh, spiritual qualities and, um, and one of these is this, the seven factors of enlightenment and, 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 uh, and equanimity is, is the final one of these. These are all cumulative and they, uh, 
they give rise one to another, and of course, you know, they're also cultivated in a way uh, simultaneously. It's not just linear, but but mindfulness is the first of these uh, factors of enlightenment, and and equanimity is um, is is the the seventh. <clears throat> so. Um, so there's a quality in equanimity of non-resistance <coughs> to experience, um, open without attachment, without holding on, or preference or resistance. And yet it is deeply connected. It's not indifference. Um, equanimity is sometimes uh, mistaken for indifference. In fact, in some translations uh, of uh, Buddhist teachings or other spiritual teachings, uh, the word indifference is used uh, to describe equanimity, and that can cause confusion. But in, in, in Buddhist teaching, um, in this insight tradition, the word indifference is used to describe a kind of disconnect a kind of a, a turning away. It's um, so. Uh, in fact, um, indifference can be a kind of a, a false equanimity. It's like, uh, oh, it doesn't really matter, you know. Uh, um, or it can be a kind of a false uh, expression of. Of, of a view of non-self, like, oh, well, nothing's real anyway, you know. So that, that is um, not a true expression of equanimity. Equanimity is deeply connected uh, and, um, and cares about experience. Uh, we can also say about equanimity is is that it's a it's a a view that we don't need to fix anything. We don't need to see ourselves or anyone else as a problem to be solved. Welcoming things as they are, welcoming ourselves as we are, welcoming everyone here, everyone in this room. You know, Janet gave that beautiful welcome that she always gives in the beginning of a retreat. Every one of you is welcome, no matter, she talked about, you know, ethnicity, language, religious background, mobility, and we can go deeper. We can talk about, you know, no matter how neurotic you are, <laughs> or I am, or, or how anxious, or how uh, grasping. We're all welcome here. We're all welcome. Uh, and, uh, and, and as I was saying earlier today, this, the, the practice of vipassana, in which the qualities of heart and mind are known as they are, received, accepted, 
uh, and um, and given space to arise and manifest and pass away. This is an expression of equanimity. A traditional image for equanimity is a feast to which everyone is invited and welcomed. So we, we see our thoughts, we mindfully observe their rising and passing away, and we're welcoming and letting go. Just as you know, we receive each breath, and it arises and passes away, and then we're present for the next breath to arise and pass away, and, and the same with the thoughts. We receive thoughts or, or emotional states or uh, mental patterns, habitual mental patterns. We see them arise, manifest, and pass away, and then the next one comes. And, and as we know in, from our practice, you know, as the guests keep coming in the door. The thoughts arise and keep coming. And this, this image reminded me of uh, a wonderful poem by Rumi, uh, a, um, a Sufi mystical poet. Um, Many of you have probably heard this. It's, uh, it's often read at retreats. It's called The Guest House. <clears throat> this being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the malice, Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. The Buddha often um, would teach by contrasting uh, a quality that he was teaching about, such as equanimity, with the lack of that quality. And, and, he, um, and he would use a, a phrase such as, you know, in the ordinary person or in, uh, in the untutored worldling. Um, uh, and then he would contrast it with the noble disciple. So, so you know, we're all untutored worldlings, and we're all noble disciples. You know, we, in one moment we may be the noble disciple, and the next moment we may be the untutored worldling. Um, 
And so, uh, so, you know, when we are the untutored worldling, we're caught in the vicissitudes of life. You know, we're caught in happiness and suffering, in praise and blame, in loss and gain, in fame and insignificance. You know, we, we want the, the happiness, we want the pleasant experience. You know, we cling to it. And when we get a pleasant experience, what we discover is we want another one. Because the pleasure of a pleasant experience just is impermanent. It doesn't keep us happy. And we want to avoid and get rid of the painful experience. You know, the sense of you know, physical pain or the looking in the mirror and seeing the aging process or uh, being with somebody that we find hard to be with or being separated from somebody that we want to be with. All of these things are vicissitudes. We want to be praised. We want to be recognized. Uh, and yet, even when we are, it doesn't really give us a sense of confidence and security. You know, if we rely on the praise, um, then we need it again and again and again. And then if, if, if we rely on, on praise to feel okay, to feel happy, to feel um, good, then we're going to be devastated when blame comes, because it will, because you can't please all the people all the time. So, beneath all of this clinging, clinging to, to praise, to, to accumulation of, of wealth or beautiful objects or, or, or pleasant experiences, um, and trying to escape from their opposites. There is this, this desperate um, attempt to find a sense of uh, security in some sense of constructed self. That I am this, I am this, praiseworthy person. I am this um, 
recognized and applauded uh, individual, skilled, professional, you know, whatever it is that we are uh, trying to establish ourselves as, that we find our identity in this. And And the, and the fear and the insecurity about losing this. <clears throat> and so we're, we're tossed on these waves of emotion that come with, you know, receiving the praise or getting the blame. And, uh, and then, you know, no sooner do we, do we find some kind of stable sense of balance or rest and a new wave comes, something else comes. So, so how do we get a footing in all in these, in these, what the Buddha called the vicissitudes of life, over which we essentially have no control? So we need to gain insight into this process and in which we're being flung about. <clears throat> and, and this insight that we develop through practice, the insight, the seeing into, the seeing deeply into these you know, all of the, these waves of, uh, you know, emotional turmoil <clears throat> is not an understanding that we get through the conceptual mind. It's not, you know, we read the Dharma teaching and reading the Dharma teaching or hearing the teaching, you know, it's really a good start. You know, we hear it, we listen to it, we understand it. You know, we start to apply it to our lives and we think about it. But then we need to sit and we need to see it directly. Spiritual insight is different from psychological insight. Psychological insight is about the story of our lives. So when I have a psychological insight, which can be very helpful, can be very helpful at times, you know, and we say, you know, I notice that I, uh, I'm not talking about myself, I'm just saying I, uh, I notice that, you know, I have trouble with intimacy, I feel, you know, blocked when somebody tries to you know, get close or when a relationship deepens I, I get panicky so so a psychological insight can you know give us some understanding of you know what are the conditioning factors <coughs> in our lives that that uh, gave rise to that habit of mind and sometimes you know this understanding can be a skillful part 
but but a a, a spiritual insight is um, is deeper than a conceptual understanding. A spiritual insight is seeing the pattern in the mind, habitual conditioned pattern of mind that drives us, whatever it is. And our patterns are not so different. You know, our patterns of of greed, of of aversion, of of uh, delusion, which can express itself in opinionatedness uh, or in rigidity of mind uh, or in just shutting out um, aspects of reality. You know, greed is grasping, and aversion, very many manifestations, judgmentalism and ill will and and irritability, all of these things, you know. So we all have our different expressions of them, but, you know, there's a universal quality to these, uh, to these habits of mind. So it's seeing, it's seeing the manifestation of greed, hatred, and delusion, and seeing that their conditioned nature, seeing that they have, that they're not self, it's not, it's not who I essentially am, they're habits of mind that manifest and, and color and, and drive my, uh, the way I, I perceive and respond in the world. But they are impermanent. You know, they arise and pass away. So anger may arise, and I may be consumed with anger. I may be s- literally seeing red, and and uh, and and when I have the capacity to not be driven by the anger, but to be with the anger and see its impermanent nature, see its its suffering nature and see its dependent arising nature. So those are the three conditions I talked about yesterday. I'll give you the Pali words. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Anicca is impermanence, dukkha is suffering, and anatta is the non-self quality, the contingent dependent arising. So those words are really rich because they have a, they have big spectrum of meaning, each one of them. So, um, so when we see, uh, when we really see through these patterns of mind which, you know, with which we identify so strongly, I need to be recognized. I, I, you know, I, uh, I need to, I need to um, fix things. I need to solve problems. You know, so, so those are ways that we identify. 
uh, just a couple of examples. We see through them. We see how um, they are conditioned factors of mind. That's a spiritual insight. And, and that's liberating. Because when we actually really see through, even for a moment, those patterns of mind, we see the, the freedom, uh, the spaciousness, the clarity, the, uh, the quality of, of non-preference, the quality of accepting, the quality of being able to be with things that are not fixable. Um, and accept them as they are. And that is uh, deeply liberating. There's a story from <clears throat> from the um, one of the discourses of the Buddha. about one of the Buddha's um, <clears throat> lay disciples, and he was uh, also a patron of the Buddha. Um, he was a, uh, a very generous donor, and his name was um, Anatha Pindaka. And um, so he was a very wealthy merchant, and, uh, and, and he was renowned for his generosity, not just to the Buddha and to the Buddhist monks and nuns, but uh, he, he was somebody who would help out um, many people who, you know, he was like a, a what do you call that, a venture capitalist uh, <laughs> of his time. Um, you know, a benevolent one who would, who would, you know, if somebody, you know, really wanted to start something, uh, he would help them get started. He would, he would um, uh, really give people that that hand up. But uh, Anathapindika had a relative who uh, a, who was a spendthrift. He was just throwing money around. And uh, he kept asking Anathapindika for money, but every time he would get an investment or a gift, he would squander it. And, but he kept asking for more. And each time Anathapindika tried to help. But finally he said, no more, that's it. And the relative continued his spendthrift habits and he fell into debt. And in not too long a time, he died. And his body was, I guess in those days, it says his body was discarded on the rubbish heap. Maybe that's what happened to people who were, you know, maybe that's like, um, uh, what do you call it, a curator, public curator's uh, grave. So Anathapindika was uh, 
was grief-stricken when he heard about this. He felt terrible. And in grief, he went to the Buddha and he said, you know, what should I have done? Should I have given him, should I have kept giving him money? You know, should I have given him more every time he asked? And the Buddha's response was, no. You know, you, you gave with generosity, you kept giving, and, um, and, uh, and he gave with a pure intention, but it was not in Anathapindaka's control uh, of what his relative did with his money. <clears throat> I think many of us can probably relate to a story like that. Maybe we have a friend or a, a relative, a son or a daughter even, who um, is uh, in some way out of control. And we keep wanting to help and wanting to help. And, um, and at some point, we, we can't help anymore. We, we're not in control. There's a um, beautiful expression by Jack Cornfield of a, a traditional saying of the Buddha about equanimity. Peace requires us to surrender our illusions of control. We can love and care for others, but we cannot possess our children, lovers, family, or friends. We can assist them, pray for them, and wish them well. Yet in the end, their happiness and suffering depend on their thoughts and actions, not on our wishes. So that equanimity <clears throat> that we develop in seeing deeply into the arising and passing away of our, our heart, the, the movements of our heart, the thoughts that arise in the mind, we, we bring into the world there are so many um, deeply sorrowful events in this world over which we have no control, little or no control. Some, uh, some examples of uh, equanimity. <clears throat> uh, under, under duress, under difficult circumstances. There's a story um, uh, that I heard once in a talk given by <clears throat> Ajahn Sumedho. Ajahn Sumedho is, uh, is a monk um, a senior monk in the Thai forest tradition. He was one of the first Westerners to go to Thailand. He practiced with Ajahn Chah, who transmitted the Thai forest Dharma teachings to 
to uh, Western teachers, many of whom who are, are teaching now in England and Canada and the U.S. Um, we have a Thai forest um, monastery in Ontario, right here in Perth, Ontario, called Tesarana, and it's a, it's a very uh, a very wonderful senior monk named Ajahn Viradamo. In, he was a student of Ajahn Sumedho, <clears throat> as well as Ajahn Chah. So Ajahn Sumedho was telling the story when he first began uh, practicing with, with Ajahn Chah, and he, uh, he went and practiced in this little kuti, a uh, little hut. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it was uh, very austere, you know, just a, a little mat to sleep on, uh, you know, not much shelter, just, a, you know, the, a little bit of shelter from the rain probably, but not, not complete. Um, and um, anyway, so he, he was, you know, immersing himself in practice and uh, sitting and walking meditation, long days of practice and, um, you know, probably short nights of sleep. And uh, anyway, he went to sleep one night, and, um, and suddenly uh, woke up to this sensation of, um, of insects walking over him. You know, like, and, and it wasn't just uh, a few. It was like a carpet, a moving carpet of ants. Just, uh, uh, just flowing over him, and uh, and he discovered that his kuti was right in the migration path of of uh, of ants who were making their annual migration from one place to another, uh, and uh, and he was horrified and terrified, and uh, uh, and. You know, and jumped up, and all of this, you know, fear and doubt flooded his mind. And what am I doing here? In this, you know, am I crazy? This is, you know, uh, and uh, and then he, the question arose, you know, um, am I okay in this moment? Is it? all right for me right now. And, uh, and he realized that it was. It was, it was a frightening experience, but that actually he was okay. It's okay. <clears throat> There's another story I, uh, I heard um, about a student of uh, Pema Chidran's and um, this woman who had ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And she was a, a yogi, uh, she was a, a meditator, serious meditator. And um, and she, she would just uh, ask herself, you know, it, it, would, it would be easy for her to fall into, you know, grief and fear. Grief at the loss and fear of the future. But she kept touching into her experience. 
and asking herself, am I okay right now? And she was able to say, yes, I am. I also knew a woman who uh, had ALS and uh, she had been a mentor to me um, in my early 30s. And she also had that quality of, uh, she had been, you know, she was a, she was a fun, bright, dynamic woman. And, uh, and as you know, she lost, she lost a lot of capacity. But she radiated something that was so beautiful. There was this quality of presence uh, that she sustained right to the end. <clears throat> another, uh, another story about equanimity. Um, there's uh, this monk poet named Riyakan. Um, I can't remember what century. Uh, maybe uh, 19th century, 18th century. Um, a wonderful uh, spirit who, uh, who he lived in utter simplicity, uh, utter poverty, and his his. Uh, his daily activities were, um, were meditation and, and uh, writing poetry and, and just taking care of the basics of his life. And then he would go play with the children of the village. <clears throat> so uh, one day he came back to his hut on the mountainside and he discovered that you know, his few meager possessions you know, his bowl, his cooking pot, his little stove. You know, his, his little hut had been broken into and, and everything had been taken. Every, everything had been, you know, dis, disrupted and turned upside down. And his, his few meager possessions were taken. And he spoke a poem. He said, the thief left it behind, the moon at my window. The thief left it behind, the moon at my window. So that, that, that profound equanimity to, to simply open to the presence of the moon, the acceptance of the loss of his few possessions. I, um, it's uh, hard to imagine coming back to my home and finding it ransacked and, uh, and having that uh, that quality of equanimity. 
You know, and it's, it's, it's important also to be honest and to, if equanimity is, is present in a moment, and there's that space and acceptance and openness and groundedness in, you know, the impermanence of the transience of everything, uh, that's beautiful. And if, and if it's not present, uh, then we need to be honest and, and not simply be in denial and, and think that, you know, it's more spiritual, you know, it's better to deny our reactivity and to say, oh, it doesn't matter, I'm fine with it, you know, it's, you know, we do that sometimes, don't we? We, uh, we pretend it's kind of um, fake equanimity. <laughs> we can, uh, we can, you know, pretend, oh, it's okay, everything's okay. But actually we're really angry. So it's, it's better to, it's better to know anger as anger. It's better to know grief as grief than to pretend to be uh, equanimous. So, so there are a number of factors that support the arising of equanimity. I mentioned yesterday when we, when we took the vows, uh, the precepts, you know, that virtue supports the arising of equanimity. And one of the, one of the, the very first aspects of virtue that we, we need to cultivate on our spiritual journey is forgiveness and and uh, and release of guilt for that we that we're holding you know and, and so that you know that that may not sound like oh what, what does that have to do with the virtue but when we're holding you know anger and hatred and resentment against somebody for all of our lives when we're holding on to a sense of being a victim when we're blaming ourselves for our whole lives for something that happened you know years and years ago that's not cultivating virtue and so Opening to forgiveness is a very important part. Working through our resentments and grief. <clears throat> you know, otherwise, we may think that everything's okay, but then something triggers us, you know, and touches that victim mentality or that that guilt and before we know it we're pulled back into a whole set of conditioning factors so forgiveness uh, it doesn't forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciliation forgiveness means letting go of the held resentment anger held over time is resentment 
So letting go of the resentment. Accepting that things just happened as they happened. Just, it's, it's that quality of equanimity that, you know, we accept things are as they are and we accept that this is how our life unfolded. And, and this, uh, this non-harming, this attitude of non-harming, the uh, cultivating the, the attitude of non-harming through the five precepts, uh, as, as I spoke about last night, that, we, um, that we, when we've internalized the sense of ethics, that we will not intentionally violate this brings a sense of ease and peace of mind. And the se- a second factor that gives rise to equanimity is, co- is a confidence in our spiritual path. So as we practice and we, you know, we, uh, we bring meditation into our daily lives and we're, uh, we're noticing that reactivity is decreasing, that we're able to be with things in a new way, uh, we see that suffering, that the suffering we experience is less than it used to be. Perhaps we're more open, we're able to be more generous or kind-hearted. Then, um, then our doubt begins to decrease and confidence in the Dharma uh, grows. And a third factor is insight, you know, which I've talked quite a lot about. That, um, that this seeing th- into the nature of experience, the anicca, dukkha, and anatta, of everything that we can experience. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the colors of the sunset, you know, as we look out on, on the river or, or the, you know, the beauty around us. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, feel playful and joyful and creative. But it, um, it means that we can be with whatever is happening in the heart and mind. And we don't cling to what's pleasant and, and, uh, and resist, push away, turn away from what is difficult. And deeply seeing into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness, we develop wisdom. And wisdom is a knowing which is also not knowing. Wisdom is the openness, the spaciousness of mind to be with the not knowing, to be present with each moment as it's arising. So rather than filtering the world through all our ideas and opinions and preconceptions and preferences about what it is or should be or we want it to be, uh, just um, being present 
in that space of openness, which is also a kind of, kind of, in a parad- paradoxical way, it's a not knowing. It's a, it's a freshness of perception. It's a, it's a capacity to always be surprised, to receive in a new way uh, this person, this place, this situation. And, and the other and the final factor which supports the arising of equanimity is love. A deep connection. Love is um, love is sometimes used in Buddhist teaching to talk about attachment. And when I read a quote uh, from the Song of Meditation, it talked about love and hate, and that's talking about attachment or grasping and hate. But love. Is, is simply uh, a, a quality of kindness and friendliness toward ourselves and toward all life. A, a sense of kinship, even, um, we could say, because we are kin with all of life. We are connected. We are part of everything that is. And so this quality of, of kindness gives rise to, to equanimity. It's a kind of intimacy, an intimacy which receives and accepts and doesn't try to fix or or shape or fashion according to our preferences. So we'll have few minutes of silence, being present with whatever's resonating in you from (coughs) the talk that you've just been listening to. Maybe allowing it to resonate and then just letting go. and being present in the silence.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.